Welcome to a Common Educator's Guide to an Uncommon Student's Experiences. Here we discuss how first-generation students, students of different cultural backgrounds, and students of different economic statuses approach education differently and how their experiences on campus shape their education. One of the toughest challenges faced in education is the variety of student backgrounds that result in the large variations in the perception and valuation of education. These analyses have been compiled to help educators better understand the possible perspectives, goals, and needs of students with the belief that better understanding will allow for better student outcomes. Welcome back to another episode of A Common Educator's Guide to an Uncommon Student's Experiences. I'm your host, John Carlos Stabler, and in today's episode, we're going to be exploring developmental experiences and influences and how they impact the ways that students approach and value education. In order to begin this inquiry, I think that it's important to have a baseline understanding of school and its purpose. It may seem obvious. The purpose of school is to have students learn more information. And while that's true, and students definitely do come out of their education knowing more math, science, history, etc., education does far more than just that for the student. Beyond teaching students information, school is meant to teach students all of the skills that develop and build the foundation that the rest of their lives and careers will be built on. In other words, as researcher in pedagogy at the University of Split in Croatia, Ines Blazovic, put it, education, quote, has a goal of comprehensive development of student and should, quote, stimulate students' integral development within three domains of knowledge, affective, cognitive, and psychomotor. Now, we'll discuss more about her research later in the episode. Next, for anyone who hasn't heard these terms before, which I certainly hadn't before reading about them, I'll explain them here. Cognitive learning refers to the classical, quote-unquote, learning, that involves learning new information and development and developing critical thinking and problem-solving skills. Psychomotor learning focuses on developing the relationship between cognitive function and physical movement, which can include dexterity, fine motor control, and just general movement. Finally, effective learning defines any sort of learning that develops feelings and emotional intelligence. To sum it up, this means that schools should help students develop three things, knowledge, skills, and attitude. Now that we've set a goal for education, how can we maximize the success in developing these areas? Unfortunately for the teachers, this is not an easy question to answer, and honestly, to answer it succinctly, all you can really say is that it's probably just going to be vastly different for every student. This is exactly what we've been covering throughout this series. We've discussed how cultural background, economic status, and first-gen status affect how students approach and value education. However, I would say that we've yet to talk about one of the most important factors, or I guess it's more like several factors rolled into one. How does the development of the student impact them in education? Well, let's see. Developmental factors are extremely varied, and there's no way that we could consider and discuss every single one of them in this episode, so we're going to focus on a handful of the most prominent and important ones. I'd say these can be grouped into family influence, peer influence, self-perception, school influence, and developmental experiences. We will look at these factors using the writing of Ines Blazovic in her paper, Family, Peer, and School Influences on Children's Social Development, and W.B. Frick in his article, The Symbolic Growth Experience. One of the first developmental factors that will start to affect a child is their family influence. The family plays an extremely large role in the development of a child and stands to form the predominant foundation for future development. Ines Blazovic writes that, quote, the first social patterns of behavior, which the child uses in social interactions with peers, are the outcomes of the social relations that the child acquired in the family. Blazovich highlights four styles of parenting, authoritarian, authoritative, 
indifferent, and indulgent. Authoritarian parenting is overly controlling and shows no love, warmth, or affection, and most often leads to a lack of pre-social development in the child. Indifferent parenting is characterized by withdrawal of the parents from the child and a demonstrated lack of care about the child's success, which clearly does not do well to set a child along the path to pursue academic success. Opposite of authoritarian is indulgent parenting, in which the parents show high levels of affection and love for the child, but in doing so, fail to set limits and just give the child as much comfort, pamper, and just generally overindulge their child, which leads to which often leads to irresponsible, undisciplined, and socially underdeveloped children. Authoritative is far and away the best of these parenting styles, being described as parents who are sensitive and caring towards the child's needs, but define clear limits. In school, this usually contributes to high academic success and forms a strong foundation in effective learning and social development for the child. Peer influence is generally the next factor that shows itself in, its in development. It has been shown that connecting with peers in a friendly way is integral to the development of positive social behaviors in the future. We can quantify peer relations with two measures, popularity and friendship. I know that when most of us hear popularity, a certain image comes to mind. But in this case, when I say popularity, really, I just mean a measure of how the, of how the child's general peer group perceives that child. And friendship is just a measure of the quantity and strength of close trusting relationships that the child has with their peers. Popularity is surprisingly important for development, as children who are unpopular tend to be more isolated, which can cause, which can cause them to develop hyperactivity, egotism, aggressiveness, and generally just to neglect the needs of others. Popular kids also tend to have more friendships, which would make sense because they have more opportunities to, to develop close friendships. Blazevich writes that, quote, well-accepted and popular children are ready to help and cooperate, co cooperate take care of others, and have highly developed skills of pro-social behavior and resolving conflicts. This is very important since arguably the most formative type of social development after family influence is peer influence. Social development leads to cooperation, trust, problem solving, and can positively impact our next topic, self-perception. Another very important factor throughout development is self-perception. Self-perception can be thought of as two main categories, self-determination and self-respect. Self-determination encompasses the child's belief that he or she is in control of what they do, and self-respect encompasses the impressions about him or herself that they hold. Throughout childhood, self-perception is predominantly formed by comparing oneself to one's peers, and then in school, through measures of success that we put in place such as grades, test scores, etc., which interestingly tend to, be substantially, tend to put substantially more emphasis on cognitive development, which is just something to think about. According to Blazevich, many studies have shown that students with low self-respect tend to take less responsibility for their failures, not persevere, or not even attempt to solve problems, and just generally don't push themselves as hard as their peers with high self-respect. Clearly, self-respect is a vital part of development, especially when it comes to how children approach school and motivate themselves. Finally, we can shift our focus to the classroom. How do classroom environment, activities, and relationships affect the development of students? We want the, the classroom to be an environment in which students feel capable of and supported in learning, growing, and developing. Personally, the whole growth mindset concept comes to mind, you know, the one we've heard a million times, but I do believe that it is seriously important to portray to your students that no one is static in their, no one's static in their development, understanding, or learning, and that there's always room for growth. Yes, even in you, the teacher. Additionally, 
As I mentioned earlier, we often put a lot of emphasis in school on cognitive learning, but there's really no need for school to be solely a place of cognitive development. And in fact, I think it absolutely should be a place of development in all three areas that we highlighted at the beginning of the show, cognitive, affective, and psychomotor. School offers an opportunity to be a place of strong social learning and development, as students are surrounded by many peers for significant amounts of the day. Why not encourage students to build strong strong relationships with each other, learn teamwork, conflict resolution, trust, and even friendship? With that, I think I've rambled quite long, so we're going to take a quick mid-episode break. This episode was brought to you by UConn's mentoring programs. UConn has over a dozen mentoring programs, with widespread mentoring programs open to everyone, programs for first-year students, students from specific cultural backgrounds, and more. Any student is almost guaranteed to find a mentoring program that suits them. These programs can be greatly beneficial to students, especially the more focused ones, as they allow students to have extremely positive experiences relating to education, as well as forming relationships with other students and mentors who can have very positive influences on them. The development and learning that can occur from these experiences and influences is a great supplement for the development and learning that can occur within the classroom. If you're interested in learning more about these mentoring programs, you can head to beamentor.ucon.edu. Now, let's get back to the show. Welcome back, everyone. Now it's time to talk about our final topic, developmental experiences. So far, we've predominantly focused on what I would call developmental influences. These are large sets of relatively low-impact experiences that group together to strongly affect development. Developmental experiences, however, tend to be more one-off, standalone experiences in which the child undergoes a significant amount of growth. This is where we can look into the writing by Frick. His article predominantly focuses on what he calls symbolic growth experiences, which are experiences in which someone learns tremendously from something usually unrelated to what is learned. These can come from many sources but are usually characterized by spontaneity and open-mindedness of the learner. Interestingly, Blazevich also talks about the importance of spontaneity for these quote-unquote learning moments and says that they often require a model for the child to base their learning off of. Symbolic growth experiences are quite random and it's difficult to cultivate them, particularly in a standardized curriculum. So I really think that the best thing a teacher can do is, as we talked about earlier, just try to promote an environment of learning, growth, and open-mindedness. So that if any moments do come up that could trigger an SGE for students, they're able to be capitalized upon. I know that was a lot of information to cover, and I hope that you now have a better understanding of some of the factors that can impact students' approaches and views towards education. And hopefully you've come away with some ideas for how you can implement this knowledge to relate with and understand your students and give them great opportunities to learn. Now, I've enjoyed getting to talk with you all, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast series. If you did, you can always support us through donating or even just following us and sharing our podcast with others. From the whole A Common Educator's Guide team, we're super appreciative of all of you listeners, and we can't wait to hear how you put the information from this podcast to use in your classroom. 